This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. When it comes to evaluating America's general approach, tone, and tenor to conducting itself around the world, all too often and of late, it's been critiqued as in decline from presidential tweets that punch at some of our closest allies, including the Prime Minister of England, to a calling out of our strongest and most durable alliances, including NATO, as strategically unfit for what the world needs today, to even starting trade wars with other countries. All too often, America's character, its moral authority, and frankly, its number one export of democratic values seems to be being chipped at day in and day out. But is that actually fair? And is that how other countries perceive us? To figure it out, we actually asked a parliament member from another country. In this case, we're hosting Dr. Leite, a parliamentarian from Portugal, who joins the podcast on the heels from a special conversation at the UN at General Assemblies to discuss what it means to have a multilateral set of countries fighting for common interests, and how shared goals like global health pandemics and other approaches to the way that we ought to conduct foreign policy are perceived from the perch of not, not a behemoth like China, not an adversary like Russia, but an ally like Portugal. Find out more with a special guest on American Enough. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. We are we're gathered here in the on the heels of the UN General Assembly's um, a massive global convening of countries from around the world, delegations around the world, um, and you, Dr. Lit, uh, as a member of Parliament, represent Portugal. Uh, and I and I use the UN convening as a backdrop because while I know very specific representatives and, and uh, foreign ministries and and uh, UN ambassadors represent certain countries' views uh, at that forum. It also is an interesting time for the world's alliances to gather here on U.S. soil, um, arguably because America, under its current administration and leadership, has talked a lot about reshaping those alliances and rethinking about the way America acts, uh, whether it should prioritize itself versus whether it should prioritize others. Um, similarly, that notion that put our current president into office, this sort of what has been described politically here as a populist notion, um, has seen waves across the rest of the, the world, frankly. You know, we saw a populist outburst uh, in the EU with the Brexit. Um, a few years ago, um, your country had a lot of um, uh, public debates about, uh, particularly with the Chancellor of Germany, about how spending should be approached in the state, whether we should invest in more public programming for, for fellow um, countrymen and women, or whether there should be a, a pullback in austerity. And kind of, regardless of what each country's specific issue is, it does seem that this trend has been mounting around the world where that one could argue that there's this concern around access to economic opportunity, access to job, a concern about uh, refugees and immigrations and others benefiting at my expense if my prospects don't look like they're going upwards. And I wanted to start with that long-winded frame because even though we're here um, in the United States, 
this is something that you confront representing your constituents day to day. Um, and I'm just kind of wondering how you see, is that a fair characterization for the people of Portugal as well? And is that a fair characterization for how you see the United States acting from your perch? Well, first of all, thanks for, for having me here, Vikram. And uh, it's great to be in New York City. It's a fantastic city. Absolutely. And to, to be in, uh, on your podcast, I'm truly honored. Uh, you know, Portugal has a tremendous history, uh, more than, you know, nearly a, a millennial of history uh, that includes, of course, a period of time that includes um, what we call the discoveries period, where we try to explore the world. And uh, one of the reasons of that is because the Portuguese people, I would say, are, you know, they're always trying to strive a bit more. They're trying to go uh, a step further. Uh, and so we're a small country, physically. We have a 10 million population. And uh, if you look around, all of a sudden, the best soccer player in the world is Portuguese. That's right. Uh, the UN Secretary General is Portuguese. Mm -hmm. The leader of the Migrations International Organization is Portuguese. And so, and the previous EU, EU Commissioner was Portuguese. So this to say that despite being a small country, we have been able to play, I would say, an interesting role on the global scale. And I think that that is partly because through centuries of diplomatic skills that have been developed towards uh, a way of being that is very respectful of different cultures and very open to um, other peoples has led to Portuguese people really playing this diplomatic pivotal role of building bridges. Hmm. And uh, when we look at the European situation, as you were framing, we can see, of course, there, are, there is a rise of populism, which I would translate into a rise of nationalism That's and right. uh, a focus of really pushing away the European ideal towards favoring a more nationalistic uh, home front kind yeah. of approach. And, of course, you know, look at Italy. You have the Italy, Italian government uh, going that direction. Previously, you had other governments going that direction. Uh, the Polish government clearly sure. is, positions themselves that way. Hungary just recently was subjected to a vote in the European Parliament that somehow criticized the Hungarian government for some of their behaviors. And I'm part of, their political, of the political family of the current government, And my party in the European Parliament actually voted in favor of those, uh, of those sanctions. And so this to say that um, we are living different times, yeah. uh, interesting times, as someone had said in the past. And I wouldn't say that it's unique. We, I would say we have this psychically. It's part of sometimes of human nature to try to focus more on ourselves than on others. And the truth is... When we look at the United Nations, it came out of two horrible wars that Absolutely. killed millions of people. We are now, our generation, Vikram, is victims of peace and prosperity. We are the victims of not having that kind of difficulties that have led to um, the global nations needing to unify for something. And that undermines multilateralism. And so in that point, I would agree 
that the current U.S. administration, and not, I, I won't get into the domestic issues uh, sure. as a, a national parliamentarian from Portugal, but on the multilateral organizations, I think that the U.S. has always had a pivotal role, not only in the U.N., in NATO, which Portugal is also part of as a founding member, and that role is one that is useful for the world, and it, and it contributes to that peace and prosperity not just beyond the U.S. soil, but also for the United States. Growing up, I was born in Toronto, uh, so I'm Portuguese-Canadian. Okay. And I remember very clearly, despite when, being, when did you move to Portugal, by the way? So in 91. Okay. So I was 11. And I was, I, I remember very clearly at the time, the discussions uh, around NAFTA. Yes. The free trade agreement. And we would hear it all, right? Jobs are going to be lost. We're going to lose uh, uh, part of our rich, uh, our GDP is going to be hit by this drill and whatnot. And what came out of it, actually, at the end, was, once again, prosperity and collaboration between nations. And it was some, I think it's something that Canadians and Americans valued side by side, mm. and Mexicans, of course, valued as something that bonds the North Americans. To see, to see it now portrayed as something that is against the national interests yeah. is really bringing back those arguments from the 80s that I think are, do not make sense. And I'm very happy that the Euro European Union was able to finish the, the deal with the Canadian government for the, the, the economic uh, free trade agreement between Canada and the Euro European Union. But uh, sadly, The, the American EU deal basically yeah. went down the drain right. due to the, the change of the, the current administration. So this to say that uh, America is still a leader in the world. I have no doubt about the role that positive or negative role that American can play. Yeah. And it is important for, for, for the U.S. government to understand that That, that is also a responsibility that goes beyond, of course, selfish interest sometimes. And it's being part of this global community. And I think that most citizens understand that. And I think that that global community aspect is really what's key here. Because as you even laid out, let alone Portugal has an incredible history of being a bridge culturally, economically. Now, if you take a look at how more and more trade flows across borders, even if this president or a future president wants to, you know, rip up NAFTA, retool it or repackage it again and so on and so forth. The fact remains that in, with the power of an internet connection and an idea, anyone can ship a, a product for their business anywhere all over the world. Could, your first sale could be in Beijing or it could be here in the U.S. in Boston. And these sort of, this flattening has created a lot of movement of commerce of people in, in fascinating ways and you know some will continue to debate what the upside has been and what the downside has been uh, but as, as, as someone that is inherently part of not only representing the people of Portugal and you know the region you, you represent and the party you represent but also where that has a participation in the broader EU parliamentary system there's something kind of innate about your understanding of global alliances um, Talk to us a little bit about how, as someone who is a representative 
of the parliament in Portugal, but you also have to keep an eye on broadly what the entire Eurozone block is up to. How do you end up valuing or reconciling those? Do they ever feel at odds at time, or do you feel like you always vote on what's best on behalf of the Portuguese economy? Or well, how does that trade-off work as a member of parliament? Well, in the Portuguese case, we actually have then another angle that we have to approach. So we have the national, we have the European, and we're also part of the community of Portuguese-speaking countries. Okay. To, th through which we have diplomatic and very strong economic ties. Okay. And, and even cultural and emotional ties. Sure. So making it one decision... Brazil, for example. Brazil, yeah. Angola, Mozambique. My parents were born in Angola, so okay. it's a very, very close connection. That being said, it is always a question of balancing out what is at, of course, in the first level, the best interest of the Portuguese people, but understanding also that the platform of the Social Democrats that I was elected through positions ourselves as European, as pro-European, mm -hmm and pro-Portuguese-speaking community, which means that in certain moments that, you know, if we have to sacrifice partly from a nationalistic, selfish view for the greater good, we might do that. Mm -hmm. As a European myself and a very proud European and believing in the European project and ideal, I believe that we need to work more to, to strengthen the European project. Once again, the European project was also a byproduct of war. It was a byproduct of poverty. It was a byproduct of suffering. Fortunately, nowadays, we don't have that. And uh, people don't feel that kind of um, distress in their day-to-day -day lives. What they do feel, the kind of distress they do feel, is inequalities, lack of jobs, lack of opportunities, and, uh, and a lot of bad media just saying that the world is bad constantly. Mm. And that leads to... Once again, we get back to that, that nationalistic sense of being. What happened with Britain was a disaster, in yeah. my opinion. Brexit is the direct result of all of this combined. I was recently in Swansea, Wales, and the, the cab driver was telling me that why Brexit was, in his opinion, very important. I asked him, and he was saying, you know, we need to be careful because of all of these migrants coming in from Northern Africa and Middle East. And I looked around and I said, we're in Swansea, Wales. You don't have, you basically have, you have no international people living in your country. Right. And you have no <laughs> migrants. What are you talking about? Right. It's self, and then you go to London, one of the most diversified country, cities in the world, and you feel exactly the opposite. People are open. So it's a cultural transformation. It's an educational process, I would yeah. say. Um, and then, and, that, that, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that I'm lucky to be part of a country, Portugal, that has positioned itself. Uh, I'm now in the opposition. Previously, I was in part of the majority. But on the diplomatic and international scale, we have been consistent in being an open country, mm -hmm. welcoming to, to migrants. And actually, when the quota system was developed following the tragedies of the refugee cr uh, crisis uh, two years ago, Portugal was a country, despite being a small country, was a country that showed uh, the willingness to welcome most refugees in Absolutely. all of the Union. And so that really goes to show the, how the people position themselves, because this had popular support. And how much of that do you believe is, uh, sorry, not necessarily 
Portugal as a country, but so much for, for you in particular as an uh, elected uh, member of the parliament. Um, it's interesting because while our guests can't see it, you are a very young elected representative or MP. You, as you mentioned, you came from Canada. A good chunk of your early childhood was spent there. You now live in Portugal. You have parents who are from Angola. Um, that has got to, in some capacity, impact your own identity and worldview. How does that come to bear when you are either keeping these frameworks in mind of kind of, you know, seeing the nationalist waves occur, but trying to make sure that policies that you're advocating for and coalitions that you're building stitch the same sort of range of cultures that even you personally experienced growing up? Well, you're, you're right in the point that uh, I'm very fortunate to have a global view, and somehow I feel like I'm a, a, a product of the Atlantic. Yeah. You know, parents from Angola, Africa, being born in Canada, having grown up as a teenager and as an adult, uh, as a Portuguese citizen in, in Europe and Portugal. Um, that objectively shapes my views. It gives me a sense of being of a global world. And I think that that is something that I use in my advantage. Uh, that is in my advantage as a representative of the Portuguese people, as a, as a citizen of the world. And even in my, in my profession as a physician, um, when we talk about the scientific community and being able to position ourselves internationally more and more, you cannot stay within the four, you know, the four corners of your of your home. You need to go out there. You need to. The world is goes beyond the the borders of your country, and so that truly shapes it. And what I have seen in Portugal and in Europe at large is that our generation. Uh, so I would be pre-millennial, I guess, uh, and the millennials, and after that. They are actually more prone to this kind of globalized view. I think social media has played a pivotal role in that mm -hmm. than probably older generations. And so that gives me hope. And so on one hand, I, I, I fight for what I believe in. I've been fortunate enough to have the support of my party back home and, and the people who elected me, of course. And to be able to continue to fight for what I believe in. But I also live in a country that has maintain that openness of spirit, I think. For sure. And I hope that we can become a beacon also for other European countries in that process. To take note, yeah. yeah. And I, I think it's, it's really important to, uh, because you're right, there is a depth of culture to the country. Um, there's also your own experiences. When you layer those on top of what I sort of started framing at the top about, you know, where America is or it isn't in terms of its moment of acceptedness, particularly when you see other countries convene at the UN, where each of them are in their moment of acceptedness, regardless of sort of the, the sort of skin of the borders that we all represent as countrymen and women from our respective nations, it is these beacons of hope, as you mentioned, that create that, bound, that, that sense of openness. It could be an upbringing, it could be an attitude, it could be a value, it could be an outlook. And the more and more we share that, the better off that we can be in making those bridges. But one other thing that makes a very strong bridge for us as, as a humanity on this planet is something that you work on closely, which is taking a look at multilateral institutions to do help for, uh, sorry, to invest in the help of um, the actual 
uh, health outcomes of communities around the world. And that, in some respects, one can argue, ought not ever be politicized. Um, that we need to, as you just said a moment ago, invest in R&D, trade notes on the state of the art of various practices, see what cutting edge research opportunities there are with cancer immunology, for example, as that trends. You started, um, we should as again note that, that um, you are a physician by training. You recently started an organization called Unite um, that aims to tackle everything from HIV and AIDS to um, viral outbreaks that can break and other public health crises. Why was that important for you to, to, for you to start that? And what has it taught you kind of about the global landscape of public health? Well, a lot of questions there. I'll try, yeah. to, I'll try to be brief. And I come from infectious diseases as a background. And that moment in which I started to work in infectious disease was life changing for me because I started to work with parts of society that sometimes society prefers to ignore. People that live with HIV, AIDS, with tuberculosis, with viral hepatitis are many times at the fringes of society that have due to discrimination, to stigma, to other uh, hardships have been left to the side and are sometimes victims of what we call the social determinants of health. And so it really changed the way I saw the world and made me more sensible to, to, to the inequalities and to those social factors that lead to, to, to disease and that impact negatively health outcomes. Mm. So when I got into parliament, I started working a lot on infectious diseases, of course, and um, I chaired the HIV work group, and we got a lot of bipartisan, as you would call it here, we have multi-partisan uh, yeah, support uh, for a lot of our uh, packages towards HIV, AIDS, and other infectious diseases. And in 2017, I decided to found, with the support of UNAIDS, the Joint Program for HIV-AIDS at the UN, uh, we founded UNITE as a global network of parliamentarians from around the world. We have representatives now already from four different continents. Oh, fantastic. That have come together committing to ending infectious diseases as a global health threat by 2030 under the Sustainable Development Goals of the UN. And that is something that not only is idealistic, but most importantly, it's possible. Mm -hmm. You know, when we talk about AIDS, when we talk about hepatitis B and C, when we talk about tuberculosis, talk about malaria, all of these diseases can end within our generation. These are phenomenal times. It's a paradigm shift that we can actually see millions of lives being saved. And we already know what to do. We have the scientific knowledge, we have the technology, what we need is political will yes. and understanding the power that parliamentarians can have, convening governments in the right direction, changing resource allocation through budgets, making sure that we change laws so that we can focus on human rights, understanding all of the, the transformations that parliamentarians can promote within health systems. Hopefully through UNITE we can add on to the work that millions of people around the world through NGOs and even governments are doing, trying to work on this. Hopefully parliamentarians can also play uh, an important role in achieving this global goal. And I must say, on a positive note, uh, uh, that the U.S., uh, with the, even with this administration, has continued to invest in PEPFAR. That's that, fantastic. that was a Republican uh, initiative under uh, the, uh, President Bush. And I think it is extremely important that as, as the current administration has kept it ongoing, that it continues. It is pivotal 
to make sure that we continue to curb the AIDS epidemic globally. If the U.S. were to step away from that, it would be uh, it would have disastrous effects. And hopefully, it's a call it's a call to action to the current administration Absolutely. to continue its support to what was a, a Republican initiative at the time. For sure, and and I think again, under it underscores beautifully this point that when it comes to matters of health of that kind of basic decency and dignity to be able to want some longevity in life, that we ought not politicize it. Um, I, I am curious how you have seen the fellow members of parliament en uh, engage around these matters of infectious diseases, um, given that, as you mentioned, the levers at your disposal um, tend to be working with regional actors, maybe their NGOs, uh, using the lever of a budget appropriation process to sort of steer right. resources. Um, do you get kind of a, a mixed approach based off of the political conditions or the resource conditions in each of those communities? Or given that matters of infectious disease or matters of HIV and AIDS or other similar kind of public health collective goals, are people generally on board or marching towards the same outcome? It always depends on the cultural background of the country. And uh, I mean, I'll give you an example. Just yeah. last week, I, we, were, we welcomed in Portugal parliamentarians from Philippines, Tanzania, Kenya, Georgia. Oh. And we did some site visits to some outreach programs, harm reduction programs for drug users, methadone programs. And they were all very interested in the fact that Portugal decriminalized drug use 17 years ago, which has led to less incarceration, less crime, less drug consumption. It has been much more impactful in terms of dissuasion. And at the same time, we're seeing parts of the world still going down the criminal path toward, you know, treating drug users as criminals instead of perceiving them as public health, right. as a public, from a public health perspective. So this to say that sometimes there's a previous mindset but if you show results, if you take people to see best practices, if you show data of how things have evolved, slowly, you, through concrete evidence, you can change that mindset. And parliamentarians are in a very privileged position to take home that message and to then advocate for it in their parliaments, in their civil society, yes. with their government. So. I would say that, from my experience, parliamentarians sometimes come with, uh, you know, as any citizen with preconceptions of certain situations, but if they understand the power of a certain measure, of a certain policy, and they think that it can be useful for them, and if we're persuasive enough to convince them in that direction, yeah. you can have impact, and you can transform policies. And so I, I, I honestly believe that gen generally, generally, parliamentarians elected officials they want to do good and it's just a question of framing it in a way that can help them move in that direction absolutely and in, and elevating the conversation as you said to even know that these are issues we're tackling and that there may be they may not be alone given that there are playbooks that other countries are starting to implement and trying to tackle this in that way absolutely you know as a researcher myself in the university uh, I, I now focus a lot on public health and through that on health systems. And one of the main reasons that rich country health systems are not working, and the US is a pretty bad example, to be honest, when you see how much you're spending versus the outcomes you're getting yes. in terms of GDP. And the reason is because health systems around the world 
and it's the same in Portugal as it is in Germany or Sweden or the U.S., are focused on industrial production. They're focused on doing more surgeries, mm. on more procedures. Well, what the last 20, 30 years have shown us is that more procedures doesn't mean better health. It just means more costs. Sure. So the big transformation I'm advocating for and that I feel that parliamentarians can play a role while reshaping their own health systems is to make sure that health systems move in a direction where we start financing health systems based on health outcomes. I don't care how many surgeries a health system does each year. What I care is if the citizen has the best care possible and right. from that care they have the best health status possible. Right. We have to transform these disease systems into health systems, which they are not, which also means that we have to invest more in terms of health, in health promotion mm -hmm. and disease prevention. And that also means that we, start, we have to work more on the social determinants of health. Poverty is the biggest driver to poor health. And while people don't understand that, you can put all the money you want in a health system, you will not solve the problem of bad health outcomes in a certain country or region. Given that there's such a, a vast ecosystem of these systemic drivers that are changing parts Absolutely. of that too. Absolutely. Right? I mean, yeah. if you go to a supermarket, right, and, uh, and you're, at, you're waiting to pay, 7% of the revenue of that supermarket comes from the, the products that they put next to the cashier, mm -hmm. which are typically highly caloric. Yep. They have Candy high sugar, bars. high fat. Yeah. And they contribute to obesity, childhood obesity, which leads to diabetes, to metabolic diseases. So it's, it's really a, a snowball effect. Yeah. Everybody, every institution, every organization has a responsibility to the, the, the greater good. The politicians have the role of creating the proper frameworks and regulations to make sure that everyone is doing their job properly and that people are not abusing the system out of greed or other reasons um, that then conflict with that greater good, with that interest of the common good. And I think that it's finding that balance, you know. Uh, we can, I'm not against profit. Profit is, and private businesses can play a pivotal role in generating innovation. The American example is very strong compared to Europe when we look at that side. But at the same time, what I think Europeans can try to show the U.S. is possibly having a sense of uh, common good th through regulation, finding that balance, Uh, I think we need to work more together on the transatlantic side yeah. uh, to share those experiences so we can both find a middle, a midterm that generates competition and innovation and, and progress for all, but at the same time, human rights, human dignity, and uh, fights for equality can, can be generated at the same time. And I think that that is a a kind of fundamental point that, that speaks back to what we were talking about at the top, which is that there are shared goals regardless of where we are or how we define ourselves or what our identity is and how nationalistic we want to get or how inclusive we want to get. Because if we're talking about you know, the ability for a child to have access to education or for someone to not go hungry or to have access to economic opportunity, all of these amount of these ladders of growth that can create positive health outcomes, positive competitiveness outcomes, 
hopefully even speak to positive geopolitical outcomes. Um, as you sort of sort of see the world as a member of parliament um, and as someone who is a uh, public health official, a physician that also views some of these shared um, values and attributes, how do you feel that someone, to particularly to younger people, as there is a changing of the guard of stepping up and running for office in a lot of these political sweeping movements and evolutions, populist or otherwise that we've seen, we've seen new political talent step up to the plate. What would you say is both wearing a physician hat as well as an MP hat is the, the, the kind of the rallying cause or cry for why a, an elected member, a public sector official, can be an important perch from which to affect this change? Well, it's, it's a hard time to get into politics for many people. A lot of people do not want to take that call because they know they will go under public scrutiny. And it's getting pretty harsh out there. It absolutely And it's is. getting harder and harder. But it's important. I would say it is critical for those that, especially those that believe in this globalized world, that believe in this future, you know, in which we work together as global citizens to step up and to understand that um, by sitting at home and not doing anything, you are contributing directly to the populistic, nationalistic growth wherever you are. Mm -hmm. And so I was fortunate enough to grow in Canada and to be subject to civic education from a very young age and to understand the power of community-based organizations and the power of volunteering. And I, that is something that in Europe is not as common. And I think that it's part of the secret why Canada is exceptional. And I was lucky enough to, through that, become very much interested in politics at a very young age. Uh, at the age of eight or nine, my mom was pregnant and I would write letters to the prime minister no Canada at the time complaining um, about certain laws that were, you know, my pregnant mom should, should get some benefits that she wasn't. And, um, and this, and I actually got some official responses. Natural born it. leader. I like uh, it. But, you know, I think it was, it was also because of the environment. Uh, and it's important to create that opportunity for not everyone has to be a politician. You know, you can be an amazing leader in an NGO or even in your business or you're uh, doing your career in a private company or as a school teacher. Everyone has an important role to play. The important thing is to have this, this community and global conscience that it's not just about you. It's about the people that live in your building. It's about the people in your community. And it's also about the people on the other side of the Atlantic. Yeah. And understanding that you're a part of that and that you can actually grow as a person. And you can, if you have family, you can help your family also grow with you right. uh, in that global community. You can, you can do something, not just focus on trying to be something. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And, you know, it's... We always, I saw this recently, you know, the first thing we do when we meet someone, what do you do, right? And I saw something recently that said, we should start at why do you do what you do? Hmm. Uh, so it's the why, and then the how, and the what. Yeah. And the why is the most important, and we never focus on that. It's so superficial on a day-to-day -day basis, you know? 
But the why is critical at everything we do because it determines then the way you do it. And then it determines of what you end up doing. If, you know, if I didn't, I don't, if I personally didn't have this kind of um, motivation to be part of this uh, global world and to be part of the community in my own country and to believe that uh, there has to be a sense of community and that more can be gen more good can be generated through that sense of community i probably wouldn't be in politics i would yeah. be doing my professional career as a physician or something else and uh, but it's important that we we find that kind of motivation you know and when we are doing our jobs we can actually contribute to the common good uh yeah, multiple and that, ways and i think that as as the united states continues to have strong um, elite alliances and economic opportunities with Portugal. Um, it's great to know that there are um, young and globally minded, thoughtful um, members of parliament like you, Dr. Lay, who will help try and bring that ethos of bi bridge building instead of bridge burning uh, among countries and among our shared goals and interests. Thank you so much for joining American Enough. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of the show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.